You may have a seat, and I invite you to open your Bible to the middle someplace. And then once you hit the Psalms, move forward to the book of Proverbs. We are going to make quantifiable progress the next few weeks in our study of the book of Proverbs. And I want you to know that this may be the most practical sermon series that I've ever preached, the most helpful sermon uh, group of sermons that I've ever encountered in my own life. And I have been envious the entire time wishing that my encounter with the book of Proverbs happened when I was 20 years old uh, instead of now. I think I'm jealous of you to be able to encounter the book of Proverbs and to wrestle with its teaching because it has so much obvious benefit for you in the stage and age of life that you're in. It's true, we saw last week, that the Proverbs are for everybody, but they are essentially geared towards the marriageable. They're essentially geared towards people who are at the age and stage of life that you are, and I've just been overwhelmed by the practicality and the theology and the glory of the book of Proverbs that the church and the synagogue have held this teaching for thousands of years and preserved it as our world has no conception of a steady morality, of right and wrong, of living in a way that brings honor to God and honor to others. And here it has been all along lost by a society and a world that doesn't see the truth of the book of Proverbs. And so we dive back into the prologue, this opening statement that introduces us to the first half of the book. Chapters 1 through 9 are a iconium of wisdom, a group of poems and uh, parables that point at the emphasis of wisdom, the the necessity of wisdom in your life. The thing that you need more than anything else is, is wisdom. It's skillful living unto God. It's skillful living before God as it impacts not just you in an interior level, like in your heart, in your true person, but it impacts every single relationship that, you're ha- that you have uh, with strangers and neighbors and children and parents and spouse and enemy. Every single category of relationship is intended to be touched by this, this wisdom that we're going to look at for nine whole chapters. And I'm intentionally going slow through this first prologue because I want you to understand the keys to unlocking this book because it's not a psychobio book. It's not a geography book. It is ancient Hebrew wisdom and it's not easy. And that's what's so crazy about the book of Proverbs is people read it and they think it's banal. They think it's simplistic. They think it's obvious. I was looking at a proverb yesterday. The truthful tell the truth. Well, duh, but it's not duh. It says something about where truth originates from. Like if you are a liar, and some of you are liars, it's okay, you can admit it. You won't because you're a liar. (laughs) The reason you're a liar is because inside of you, you are not truthful. 
And so this proverb says something that seems so obvious to us. The truth will tell the truth. Huh? But instead, some meditation on that reality exposes the non-truth teller with a symptomatic analysis of who he really is. The reason you don't tell the truth is because there's something bent and crooked and broken inside of you. The truthful speak the truth. So the Proverbs are not simplistic, they're profound. And so we're setting ourselves up to see the wisdom of God in the gift of wisdom to His servant Solomon, the ancient king of Israel, the son of David, verse 1. And we looked at this this preamble, this prologue that says, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And we talked about how can you learn from somebody who messed up so bad. But that's all human authors in the Bible. How can you learn from, from a king who wasted so much opportunity and wasted so much wisdom? And we talked about what a proverb is, a, a bite-sized saying that is packed with truth and divine authority. And then we looked at the object and aim and audience of the book of Proverbs in verses 2-6 through six, last time we were here. And it says, verse 2, to know wisdom, chokmah, and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. And then the verse that's our object of interest today, verse 7, the threshold and axis of the entire book of Proverbs. If you could distill the book of Proverbs into a single drop. If you could take all of these Proverbs and put them in your hand, in the palm of your hand, verse 7 would be what remains. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. To understand verse 7, the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge and the proverbial reversal, fools despise wisdom and instruction, we have to understand how verse 7 relates to where it lives. Because verse 7 is a proverb. It's actually one of them. It's quoted all over the Bible. It existed before Solomon wrote it. And it was used throughout Israelite history as a reminder of this core central truth. Before you can learn the Proverbs about money and marriage and politics and warfare and sex and 10,000 other things that that we will look at through the lens of the Proverbs, starting in chapter 10, you start here. This is the beginning point. 
And it wasn't the beginning point in this moment when Solomon penned it. It was the beginning point far before Solomon was ever born. And it will be the basis and trajectory of all wisdom, of all skillful living for all of eternity. The fear of the Lord will be both the starting point and the entry point and the path on which the knowledge of God and the embracing of wisdom and discipline will be found. There is nothing I could talk to you about more important and more relevant than the fear of the Lord. There's also nothing I could tell you that's more misunderstood. Went to breakfast last week with a friend and his friend. And my friend asked me to come along to have breakfast with his friend because his friend was in a crux in life, making big decisions about his life and his, his partner, his marriage, his business, all kinds of things. And my friend had been talking to his friend about his relationship, his engagement, and what it meant to follow Jesus faithfully. And this man that I met at breakfast had great questions. He was not the fool of the Proverbs, who is someone who's not teachable, someone who is dull and not thoughtful and not uh, open to learn. He was very open. He was interested. He was smart and thoughtful. And as he introduced himself to me and told me about his life, I asked him about his fiancée which is French for the girl you're going to marry. And he said, she's a God-fearing woman. And I hadn't heard that phrase from a person who isn't a Puritan on Facebook in a while. And as the conversation progressed and we talked about their lives and all kinds of other, other things, it became clear to me that, that this man, if he is a Christian, needs to, to grow in some ways of understanding. And, and I asked him a question. I asked him, what did you mean when you said that she, the girl he's living with and wants to marry, is a God-fearing woman. What did you mean by that? And he said, to his credit, I think it uh, means that she puts God first. And I said, what does that mean? And then he asked me, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And I went, I got notes on that. <laughs> I didn't. I tried to just patiently explain to him what it meant to fear the Lord. Same thing I want to do with you today. But because this is an audience that is dug into the book of Proverbs, I want you to understand what it means to fear the Lord here in this verse and why 
Verse 7 is the threshold of the entire book of Proverbs. You know threshold, the thing, the door, the doorway, the entry point. If you don't get verse 7, you don't get Proverbs. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you don't have a relationship with God, you don't have true knowledge of God, you do not have a skillful approach to life that honors God and honors man, that's wisdom, and you don't have any discipline, which is both corrective teachability, it's the word instruction here in verse 7, corrective teachability, and a structured way of moving through life according to God's plans and God's rules. All of it has its starting point at the fear of the Lord. So first, we've got to look at the structure of the prologue. And this sounds geeky a little bit, but there's a professor who said, uh, a literature professor on the East Coast, uh, she said, you don't know what a text means until you know how it means. You don't know what a text means until you know how it means. And I want to show you how it means. How does verses 2 through 7 mean? In other words, why does it look like this? Why is it arranged funny like it is? Why is it repetitive with the word prudence? Why is it structured like this? Because you can't know what it means until you know how it means, how it's going about telling you what it's trying to tell you. And it's thousands of years outside of our way of thinking. And many cultures different than our culture. And so just as Hamas and their worldview is so alien to you, the worldview of the people of the Levant thousands and thousands of years ago when this was first penned is so different. They read different. They thought different. They heard different. And when they heard verses 1 through 7, they immediately saw something that we would see if we were watching a movie because we're looking for foreshadowing and we're looking for other literary arcs in a screenplay that unfold and we're looking for character development and tension and climax and resolution and a powerful ending and Bring it all together. If we're watching just a movie or a dumb show or whatever, we have a way that we do that. They heard their literature similarly because they saw things that we don't see. And one of the things they saw when they read the verses or heard the verses that we just heard, one through seven, is they saw structure. They saw poetry Not like our poetry that says ham, jam, ram, ma'am, cam, lamb, meh. Rhymy, Susian poetry. Hebrew poetry is all about parallels and piling up words and phrases. And what they saw was they saw the repetition and they heard it. And they saw the beginning to say, to know wisdom and instruction, verse 2a. They saw to understand words of insight, verse 2b. And then they heard that word prudence, verse 3a. And then they heard in 3b, three words that were to them powerful and central. Righteousness, justice, and equity. Three words that 
overlap and are synonymous in so many ways, righteousness and justice and equity. And then their ears heard in verse 4 and 5, prudence, discretion, and guidance. The same word they heard in 3a. And then they heard to understand Proverbs and riddles in verse 6. The same words they heard in 2b, to understand words of insight. And then they heard verse 7, knowledge, wisdom, instruction, the fear of the Lord. And they had already heard that because they heard 2a, to know wisdom and instruction. It's the same exact words piled up. And so how do I do this? Well, I show you that they had this chiastic understanding. That's the letter X in Greek. And this Hebrew poem operates in the same way with a fulcrum in the middle. And so line A matches A prime at the bottom. And line B matches B prime second to the bottom. And line C matches C prime third to the bottom. And then in the middle, you have righteousness, justice, and equity. The axis of this poem. And I want you to understand that verse 7, though it's the threshold and so important, is dependent on the middle of this Hebrew poetry. In other words, that word righteousness and its counterparts justice and equity are central to understanding verse 7. Righteousness is the pivot, the point, the gravitational pull of the entirety of the prologue. And the prologue is the a miniature version of the entirety of the book of Proverbs. And so you can't understand Proverbs unless you have a dominant, glowing, neon word in the middle that says righteousness. Righteousness is the pivot point. And it means to bring about what is right. To bring about what is harmonious. And the worldview of the Bible says what is right and harmonious not to what you feel, but to what God says. Righteousness in the Bible finds its basis in the revelation of God, the Word of God and His creation of the world and His rule of the world. Because a Christian worldview, which hardly anybody has anymore, starts not with me and what I want and who I am or I think therefore I am or some kind of philosophical thing. A Christian worldview starts with God made us. God made me. And I live before Him. And someday I will end like all the other people have. And I will go back to God and I will answer to Him. Your psychobio teacher doesn't think that way about the world. That is contrary to the scientific method. Big time. That is in full court opposition to the way people think about how the world is and works and who they are. But that's primary if you're going to live in a world that's centered on the righteousness of God, what He says is right and harmonious, and how He rules the world. Righteousness is wisdom enacted. One author says righteousness is wisdom in shoe leather. Translate that for you. Righteousness in sneakers on the town. Going out into the world. Living out what is right. Bruce Waltke says righteousness means disadvantaging yourself to advantage others. Righteousness is a concern for God's way and a preference for other people's advantage to your own disadvantage. That's fundamental to the Bible. 
And if you're a Christian, that's not alien to you because you know someone who lived their whole life like that. Right? That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous one. He lived completely according to God's rule and way. And he disadvantaged himself for the sake of others every waking moment of his life until he hung on the cross in our place. The ultimate disadvantage for the advantage of others. And so righteousness isn't something that Jesus invented. It's something that is found in the triune person of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Before creation was, righteousness was. And God created the world and righteousness unfolds because the world falls in rebellion to God. But God's perfect standard of righteousness and His call to His people's obedience is framed in that. The opposite of righteousness is wickedness. Wickedness is not just breaking a commandment. Jesus helps us understand this as well because a murder, though it's a violation of the sixth commandment, you remember that murder is the sixth commandment because you go like this and you say, thou shalt not murder. That's how I remember it. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Mom and dad, stay together. Uh, when my kids were little, little, I did the hand signal thing to teach them the Ten Commandments. And when they were really little, they didn't understand. They understood mom and dad say together. They didn't understand adultery. And one of my kids, I don't remember which one, would say, thou shalt not commit a grocery. <laughs> which is also true. No. Murder is a failure to care for and love your enemy, according to Jesus. Adultery, according to the book of Proverbs, is a failure to act rightly towards your covenant wife, the noble woman of Proverbs 31. Theft or stealing is a failure to be generous with what you have. Gossip is a failure to forgive the transgressions of others, but instead to air out their, your grievances against them to other people. Wickedness is a total perversion of God's standard and ways in a fallen world. And Lady Wisdom is calling you not just to wisdom, skillful living, but skillful living that's grounded and based and, and axis-centered in righteousness. Jesus lived this out perfectly. He became poor to make us rich. He gave His life to save our lives. Righteous is that perfect correlation of wisdom enacted out. And so the center of this thing is righteousness. The value of righteousness, Proverbs 13, verse 6. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. See, righteousness has this ability to guard your way, to protect you in this world. Go forward to chapter 15. Righteousness not only guards us and protects us in this world, but Proverbs 15, verse 9, righteousness, it says, the way of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but He loves him who pursues righteousness. And so you want to be loved by God. Righteousness is the basis of our, 
are being loved by God in a, in a promoted relationship with God. Or go forward to Proverbs 21, what does righteousness do? It protects us from the world. It provokes us towards love for God and God's love for us. And then Proverbs 21, 21, he who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. Righteousness is profitable. It gives us life, righteousness, honor. In other places, it gives us wealth. It gives us success. There's value intrinsically in righteousness. And that leads us to verse 7. The key to the whole thing. The threshold for entering into the book of Proverbs. For living in a way that's the good life. The skillful life. The life that honors God and and is a benefit to you, the people around you, neighbors, enemies, friends, family. Every social relationship is benefited and examined in the book of Proverbs. And the hermeneutical key to the entire thing is verse 7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So how do we understand such a deeply misunderstand concept as the fear of the Lord? Well, it's not by chopping it up. Because if we talk about fear and we talk about the Lord, we would be as advantaged as if I talked to you about butters and flies in the monarch grove, right? It's not going to help you to talk about butter and to talk about flies because that's not how butterflies work, right? Linguistically, anatomically, relationally. It's not how it works, right? You can think of other compound words that come together or concepts that come together. In linguistics, this is called a collocation. It's words that ought not to be separated to be understood. The fear of the Lord needs to be handled as a unit. It's not a pineapple, which is a pine and an apple. No, it's not. It's a pineapple. Same with the fear of the Lord. And so we take all our concepts of fear and we examine them. And I do a sermon intro about phobias. There's agoraphobia and a speaking in front of people phobia and panophobia, which is fear of everything. Uh, spiderphobia, arachnophobia. I know what this is called. This is what most sermons of fear of the Lord. You do a bunch of lists and you go, no, 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 fear of the Lord. It's a reverential awe. That's weak sauce. There's so much more here. And that's why I'm trying to dig into this thing. Don't separate it. Take it in biblical terms. And I'll give you four of them. How do we, what's the key to understanding the fear of the Lord? Let me give you four, four keys. Key number one is revelation. Revelation. Look at Psalm 19. We're not trying to understand fear. We're not trying to just understand who Yahweh is. We're trying to understand the fear of Yahweh. And let's let the Bible teach us what it is. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 9 says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, 
making wise the simple. Very proverbial words. That simpleton, we learned about him a little bit last week. He's the person who's open to everything. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear, verse 9, of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. This famous hymn about the works and word of God reminds us in synonymous ways that the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the judgments of the Lord, all synonymous ways of talking about the Word of God are of great benefit to your soul. But notice what found its way into the mix. Laws, statutes, precepts, commands ordinances, and fear. The fear of the Lord is synonymous for revelation. And so we know about the Torah, right? It's the first five books. It's the Pentateuch, the the Gospel according to Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You could call them Torah. You could call them Pentateuch. You could call them the first five books of Moses. You could call them the fear of the Lord. Hmm. You're not sure about it. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. This entire book equates the fear of the Lord with the message of this book. In other words to receive the objective revelation of the inspired book of Proverbs from the God who wrote it through the human instrument of Solomon, you are receiving His words to one which are known as or synonymous with or correlated to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a synonym for the objective revelation of God. When God speaks in His Word, what He is giving you is the fear of God. When you walk around with your Bible, whatever English version you prefer, LSB, ESV, NASB, NIV, whatever, as long as it's not the weird Jehovah Witness one, you have in your possession the fear of the Lord. That's definition and key one to understanding. Key number two to understanding the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is there is a built-in humility in the fear of the Lord. And so you could call the first one revelation. You can call the second one reception. And the way the fear of the Lord is received is it's not something inside of you like all the regular fears we have. Fear of socks, fear of Labradors, fear of whatever. This is not a fear that you locate inside yourself. It's a fear that is received as revelation from God. And then it is 
received in a particular manner. And I think that manner is best summarized by humility. Proverbs 15, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes, humility. Humility before honor. The instruction to fear the Lord requires humility before honor. The fear of the Lord leads to honor and a good life and success and oftentimes wealth and riches and and so many other things in the book of Proverbs. But the prerequisite to having that fear is humility. Humility before honor. And we all understand prerequisites, right? So I teach classes at the seminary. It's, it's like Bruce Wayne and Batman, right? So I'm college pastor, but I'm Batman at the seminary. Or maybe it's the other way around. But I teach classes at the seminary. And there's things that when you teach classes that you have to do, whether you like them or not, for accreditation and for syllabi and pedagogy and all manner of things. And one of those things is the course catalog. And it's constantly being revised by people who are paid good money to do so. God bless their efforts and I get emails that say, course catalog, and they'll ask me a question about prerequisites. And the classes that I oversee, they have classes that go before the others, just like your classes, right? Well, I can't take that class yet because I haven't taken this class. Well, in one of those emails, I either pooch something or I skip something or I answered it wrong or Esaias didn't help me or whatever. <laughs> and all semester long, I've got an email almost every day from some handsome seminarian going, "Um, Professor, I want to take this class, but apparently PM 602 is not the prerequisite for PM 604, and I listed it won't let me register, and it's been driving me crazy (laughs) because I pooched it badly somehow in the emails. The prerequisite is, is necessary. The computer won't even let them take it. The prerequisite for the fear of the Lord is the receiving it with humility before honor. It's that teachability. It's why we looked in the prologue last time and said, Proverbs aren't just for youth or marriageably aged people. Proverbs are for everyone. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. No one's ever arrived. And so that humility serves as a key to receiving the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 22, 4 says, The wages of humility is the fear of the Lord, riches and honor. The wages of humility. Humility, teachability, coachability, uh, an acknowledgement that you are not there yet, that you haven't arrived, that you have stuff to learn, that you are immature. That is the secret, the prerequisite to the fear of the Lord. And so if we focus on fear just being this non-rational, emotional thing, which it is in some ways, we miss out on these two most important stepping stones to get to the fear of the Lord, the keys to unlocking the door of the fear of the Lord. And the first is that the fear of the Lord is synonymous with divine revelation. In other words, it comes from the mouth of God. And second, you can't have it, you can't know it, you can't live in it apart from the humility required to receive it. I don't know everything. I don't have access to God because I'm a sinner. I need help. I need grace. 
I need the fear of the Lord. It's the humility that takes God seriously. And so what? Where do we go next? Well, that's revelation and reception. And now I would say we need to recount. Recount. Recount what the Bible has taught us about the fear of the Lord because Solomon didn't make this up. He received it. And there is a tension in understanding the fear of the Lord because of this objective and subjective component to it. There is a non-rational, emotional aspect of the fear of the Lord that has to do with how we feel and think and receive this. And there is the quantifiable, objective element of the fear of the Lord that is what God wants for those in relationship to Him. And we need to move forward with receiving kind of all, recalling all that the Bible's taught about the fear of the Lord. And so, where do we begin? There's a lot of places. We'll move fast. Isaiah 8 is a good spot. You can skip forward to Isaiah chapter 8 to understand what, what is the fear of the Lord and how do the prophets receive it and how was it taught from the very beginning on. And I think the kind of a culminative spot, a definitive spot is Isaiah 8 that will help us recall what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 8, verse 11. For thus Yahweh spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Israel's being told to not fear what other people fear. Verse 12. Verse 13. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. And then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike, a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them, and they'll fall and be broken, and they'll snare and be caught. What we just saw in Isaiah 8, 11 and following is the people are commanded almost in the same breath not to fear. And then told to fear. We are not to fear what they fear, but God is to be our dread or fear. We tremble before Him. And it presents to us that dilemma where we read the Bible and we go, okay, is fear good or a bad? Because the most common command in all of Scripture, do you know what it is? You think it's don't do bad stuff, but it's not. The most common command in all of Scripture is do not be afraid. And so fear is a bad thing in the Bible. 1 John 4.18 says perfect love casts out fear. And so we know that fear is bad, but then we find in other places, we think it's just in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 8.11, that we are repeatedly called to fear God. And so we start by a recognition that there is a sinful kind of fear and there is a godly kind of fear. 
recalling all the Bible teaches about the fear of God. And as we study the fear of God, and we find that fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of knowledge, becomes a proverb in Israel. Proverbs 9.10, Proverbs 15.33, Job 28.28, Psalm 11.10. All those places, we start to assemble that the fear of the Lord is actually synonymous with loving God and trusting God. One author writes this, the fear of the Lord also entails a non-rational aspect, an emotional response of fear, love, and trust. The unified psychological poles of fear and love come prominently to the fore in a surprisingly uniform way. What does that mean? Well, if you looked at the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 5, chapter 6, Moses treats the words, the love of Yahweh, and the fear of Yahweh as synonyms. Joshua, Moses' successor, Joshua 24, 14, Joshua 10, 12, 13, 5, interchangeably uses those words, the love of Yahweh and the fear of Yahweh. In Isaiah 29, 13, Israel has a fear of God that God rejects because it's distorted. It's only made up of rules and man-teachings. In Proverbs 2, 1 through 5, that I read you, it says the fear of the Lord is found through diligent seeking and humility and trying to learn from God. In Proverbs 15, 33, humility and the fear of the Lord are parallel terms, which we've already talked, taught you. And in Proverbs 22, 4, humility is equated with the fear of the Lord. You see, the fear of the Lord is this incredible, reverential, trust and love and acceptance and followership of God. If you recall all the Bible's teaching, you will find the fear of the Lord to be a positive and deferential submission and a fearful and cautious following and faith and a positive awe that becomes the key to all spirituality and all wisdom. Jeremiah 17, 17, 7, Jeremiah 17, 7 says that the fear of the Lord is love and trust. Proverbs 10, 27 says the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 14, Verse 26 says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. What's that? Trust. And His children will have refuge. Verse 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 19, verse 23, The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. And you think, well, yeah, that's an Old Testament thing. But you read Acts 9.31. That speaks of the Christian's fear of the Lord. And you read 2 Corinthians 7.1 where the Apostle Paul says that he fears the Lord. And you read Ephesians 5.21 that tells us to operate in the fear of the Lord. And Philippians 2.12 which speaks positively of the fear of the Lord. 
in Hebrews 12.28 that reminds us that we no longer are enslaved to a fear of death as we have been all our lives. In chapter 2 and then in 28, we're reminded that faith and fear go together. And so what is this? We recall the Bible's teaching from the beginning to the end is that the fear of the Lord is faith and love. It is submission and faithful following and the key to spirituality and wisdom. The fear of the Lord is synonymous for following God faithfully in humility, receiving His revelation, and following His ways. And so that's the revelation and the reception and the recalling. And so what's the response? And I think that's where we end this thing in Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That word beginning means first thing or chief thing or principal thing or starting point or foundation or presupposition. If you're going to learn the Hebrew alphabet, I'm sorry, if you're going to learn the language of biblical Hebrew, you'd have to learn, well, guess what? The Hebrew alphabet. Squiggly weird letters that look like tents and camels sometimes when you've been studying them for a while. Or English, you have to learn the ABCs. It's in that way that the fear of the Lord is a beginning of knowledge. It's not where you start and then graduate from. If you were to learn your ABCs in kindergarten and then dismiss them entirely the rest of your life, you would be very illiterate, right? You stay with them. And likewise, the fear of the Lord, the response is is that you maintain that your whole life. It's the key to knowledge and growth and increase. And awe for Yahweh links to wisdom and discipline. And so he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's, It's how you know anything that you know. It's how you understand anything true about God and the world He made. And there's no understanding of God or of His world apart from a commitment to God, faith in God, the threshold of knowledge, wisdom, and virtue. Yahweh is the starting point. God is the key to all knowledge and growth. And then the converse, which is fools despise wisdom and instruction. We'll study the word fool in the future. There's four kinds of fools in the Proverbs. Three different words, one used interchangeably, but four kinds of fools. For now, let's just call them, I think the biblical term would be idiot. No, it's true. Idiots despise wisdom and discipline. I think that's how, that's how we use that word. If you don't believe me, we'll study it more in the future. Proverbs 12.15, Proverbs 14.3, Proverbs 15.5. Idiots don't follow God. Idiots reject God's word and ways. And the contrast in the book of Proverbs is the wise and the foolish, the God-fearers and the idiots. And that sounds harsh and it sounds mean, but understand that that's the default setting of all of us. Apart from God's revelation and His work in our hearts to give us the humility to receive this revelation, apart from the entire teaching of the Bible about the love and fear and trust that comes with knowing who God is and responding to Him as He desires us to respond, we are all idiots. And the only thing that can rescue us from our idiocy, the only thing that can make a fool wise, is the words of Psalm 130, that forgiveness leads to the fear of the Lord. The response to 
Verse 7 is a relationship with God. And so who is the one who fears God? He's one who turns from evil, evil and trusts in Jesus and pursues God and His commandments and wants to live in a way that pleases God at every touch point of our lives. The English poet John Donne said, the most noble, the most courageous, the most magnanimous, not affection, but virtue, in the world is the fear of God. He goes on to say it's the exact same thing as the love of God. And so if we are to learn how to live in a way that honors God, we have to learn to fear God, love God, trust God, take God first at His Word. That's what it means to fear the Lord. David Hubbard helpfully puts it this way for our conclusion. Although fear includes worship, it does not end there. It radiates out from our adoration and devotion to our everyday conduct that sees each moment as the Lord's time, each relationship as the Lord's opportunity, each duty as the Lord's command, and each blessing as the Lord's gift. It is a new way of looking at life and seeing what is meant to be when viewed from God's perspective. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Father, thank You for this reminder of this central issue in Your world. Help us not to fear as the world fears, but to live in a way that is God-fearing that honors and reverences and loves and trusts You, that receives Your Word with humility and responds to Your Word with faith and commitment and love and trust. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.